This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Before this episode begins, we just want to send our thoughts and prayers to the Leicester City Football Club and their fans who just lost their owner and four others in a tragic helicopter crash. Our hearts are with you. Hello, hello, and welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. We're so excited you're here with us today. My name is Lindsay Gibbs. I am the sports reporter at Think Progress, and I will be your host today. Especially before we want to, before we start, I want to give a shout out and a thanks to all of our patrons. If you do not know, if you go to patreon.com slash burn it all down, you can support us. Give us a little monthly amount, $2, $5, $10, and you can help keep this show going. We are an independent feminist podcast. And that means we really need your help to keep things going every week. But this is our 78th episode, and it's going to be a great one. Joining me today are two of my favorite footy experts, Shireen Ahmed, freelance sports reporter in Toronto, Canada, and Brenda Elsie, the Associate Professor of History at Hofstra. On today's show, we are very excitedly going to talk, and appropriately, given our footy experts, going to talk about FIFA's support, or, you know lack thereof, <laughs> for women's soccer. We're going to dive into toxic cultures in football based upon the report that we got coming out of Maryland this week. And then Brenda is going to interview veteran goalkeeper Nicole McClure of Jamaica's women's national team on their qualification for the Women's World Cup. We are so excited for that interview. Okay, but before we get going, we're a little late to this news. But that's okay. We want to take a moment to appreciate patron saint Rihanna, who declined to perform in the Super Bowl this year, reportedly out of respect for Colin Kaepernick in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick. That's a pretty big deal. Brenda? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so awesome. I already love Rihanna. I've mentioned her like every other show. In some capacity. I don't know if anyone's ever noticed that, but now I feel so sort of like I have unproblematic faves too. (laughs) (laughs) You're a little smug, huh? You're a little smug. (laughs) I'm super excited. And of course, like Adam Levine jumped at the opportunity, right? So what I read was once she turned it down, he was like, yay. And it's like, of course he did. (laughs) That sounds about right. I love her and I've loved her forever. She's also like an amazing football fan. And every time the World Cup, men's World Cup rolls around, she's just like up in there. She also briefly dated Kareem Benzema, which I'm totally fine with. But as Brenda said, this is very typically Rihanna. This is no surprise that she's done this and just been like, I don't need you. 
NFL, I don't want you. You're trash. Like this is so beautifully her and I'm so here for it. It is pretty incredible. But, you know, the good news is that we all have Maroon 5 to look forward to. So, you know, (laughs) because when you think Atlanta and you think football, you think Maroon 5. So, you know, you you know what? I'm going to I'm going to probably get like totally harassed for this. But even Justin Bieber would have been better and has a stronger connection to Atlanta. I would rather. That's the most Canadian thing you've ever said, Shireen. And that is a really high bar. (laughs) And yet I agree with you, Shireen. I agree with you. I mean, I'm like, I could kind of see it like better. But that has to do with my my sort of blaming of all problems with the with in pop music right now on Maroon 5. Okay. So, so I, yeah, and Imagine Dragons. <laughs> I also hate. All right. So, well, I don't know. Look, I want to do a little shilling before we, we move on. I forgot to say in the intro that if you have somehow missed it, we have merchandise now. My favorite part of every week is getting the tweets from the flamethrowers who are drinking mug out of a burn it all down coffee mug or wearing a burn it all down hoodie or sleeping on a burn it all down pillow. It is incredible. So uh, we have a Teespring account. There are links everywhere. I don't really know how to tell you to get to it, but it's it's pretty easy, <laughs> I think. So, uh, you know, go to our website and burn it all down pod.com and we will... Make our weeks. That would be awesome, too. All right. We haven't really talked FIFA in a little bit here. So, Shireen, do you want to get us started? I always love getting us started on FIFA. So, for those that do not know, FIFA has come out with with big praise for themselves and big announcements that it's part of this uh, program, like they're always, you know, so interested in self-praise, a FIFA forward, quote unquote, development program regulations to expand and grow the women's game. Now, it's almost like every time this happens, they decide to make a committee. So they've made a committee. So congratulations, FIFA, on making a committee based on things that players, coaches, participants, supporters, and women have said for I don't know how many years. But okay, so there's that issue. Now let's get specifically to the prize money. So FIFA announced that they would be raising the World Cup prize money from $15 million of what it was previously to $30 million. So before you get all, oh, that sounds great. Let's just step back for a second. Now, the men their prize money has been raised from 358 million to 4 million. So what this does is before we start clapping, okay, spoiler, none of us were going to clap that (laughs) the gender pay gap is actually up now to 370 million. So in addition to not using VAR, the video assisted referee technology in the upcoming women's world cup, 2019 in France, this is just sort of like, an attempt to smoke out the real issues here, like I said, which are not actually addressing the lack of support from national federations that FIFA directly could be involved in, the issues of not just pay and equity, but lack of support for those federations. We're talking about basic things. And on this show, we've been lucky enough to have interviews with 
you know, Brazilian national players with Jamaican players. We have an interview with Nicola McClure coming up. Like you'll see, we've talked Trinidad and Tobago. It's just, it's, it's pretty appalling that this could be spinned as, you know, something positive. Now, that being said, a couple of national teams, including the USA, and mad props to Megan Rapinoe and Becky Sauerbrunn for actually saying this, they came out against it and so did Sweden. So Australia, Sweden, and the USA weren't going to take this and just see like, you know, this is great. So this is what Megan Rapinoe said. I think they're probably looking for pats on the back for the increase and they're not getting any from here until they're going to take meaningful steps to truly show they're caring about the women's game in sort of a deeper way. It's like, I don't know, 15 million is nothing to them. It could mean something to us. Now, I found that really, really important what she was saying, because every dollar counts for women's football every single penny. Now, also, in addition to Sweden, as I mentioned, Australia and USA coming out, what ends up happening is Fatima Samora, who is the secretary general of FIFA, is often asked to make these announcements, which is what the secretary general does. And then you see Karina LeBlanc and her exchanging positive tweets. I think these are fronts. Respect to these women because they're black women in positions that have traditionally been held by white men. But I don't like the fact, and I'm not going to ignore the fact of the organization they're representing. It's just not good enough. And I know, Brenda, you probably have a lot of thoughts, so I would love to hear them. Yeah. First of all, the issue of the prize money, I think you're just 100% right on, right? It's $400 million for the men, and then FIFA announcing how great they are for doing it is just so FIFA. I don't even know. It's like, look at this amazing, awesome thing that we've done, and then, but... Actually, on the same day, we make it really obvious that we're going to make the gender pay gap even worse. So I don't know. So that's all covered for me. But FIFA Forward is something to really think about and pick apart. I don't know if anybody's looked at it. Um, Have either of you looked at it? I put the link in the show notes. So if you look at FIFA Forward and you actually control F for women, every time they appear, they appear with and youth programs. So if I read a FIFA document to see how I can rip women off, which is the way I always read FIFA documents, which is where in here can we actually steal from women? (laughs) You can do it. You can do it really, really well. And here's how you do it. You do these programs, which look in theory like they're going to benefit women, and you give it to youth. Right. So so basically, I'll just read to you. This is the new development program. It it was launched earlier this year for much self fanfare, auto fanfare, as Shireen has pointed out by FIFA. And it says we will This is page one. We will dedicate more financial resources to investing in development. And then it says up to 500000 per year for associations for running costs based on incentives that encourage best practice. That's meaningless. I don't know what it means. Best practice and what? Best practices? <laughs> like, like, good job, guys. Training's awesome. Each confederation will receive U.S. Uh, $10 million per year for football projects. Okay. Read graft. There's absolutely nothing there. Zonal and regional associations will receive $1 million per year for youth and women's tournaments. Oh, that's lastly. Oh, hate that. Yeah, it's infuriating because we're not, it's infantilizing. And on top of it, it means you can just give it to boys. <laughs> and then it says, which is what they want to do $750,000 per year for each association for specific football projects. 
such as new facilities and women's and youth football. So I just want, I know that's like really boring, but the devil's in the details and and we see it all the time in the case of FIFA. FIFA's basically out FIFA'd itself, I think. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's all very nebulous, right? I mean, they keep saying how much they're doing, but as far as I can tell, and I'll put a, I put a link to the whole FIFA Forward program because we're going to be living with this nebulous cloud of crap for the next years. It, it doesn't anywhere force federations to spend more on women. Yeah, and that's what's needed. Yeah, it's actually worse. I mean, before in the prior program, there was. The only thing I can say is there's more accounting. There are some more like you you do need to like send in things to show how you spent the money supposedly. Yeah, Shireen? Okay, so we know how FIFA feels about women with the women's game, okay? We know that the final of the Women's World Cup is going to be held the same day as the Copa America and the Gold Cup, America's Gold. Like, we know this. We know how frustrating this is. So to just come and say, hey, we're going to give you $15 million, but actually, like Brenda said, the devil is in the details, and the devil is actually all over any program incentivizing for women coming from FIFA, quite frankly. It's just not good enough. And just to clarify, it's from $358 million to $400 million is what the men's uh, prize money is going to. So the way that this entire thing was announced was that, oh, look what we're doing for the women, but we'll just on the down low up the men's prize and maybe nobody will notice. Yeah, burn it all down, noticed. Thanks. We noticed. <laughs> We read the. <laughs> yeah, it's not like Alex Stone came out and said, We want you all to know we've increased men's prize money by $40 million. And you know, I saw <laughs> Moya Dodd kind of gently pushing back on Twitter. Moya Dodd is also our patron saint. I love her. She was very gently pushing back on Twitter, kind of asking a whole bunch of questions. And the answer she was given to, from Alex Stone was, Oh, we're just working on that. And then guess what happens? Committee is born. Yay, committee. Yay. God, I want to be on that committee. I don't see that happening, Shireen, but I do wish I lived in that world. <laughs> Speaking of Moya Dodd, I did love, like, she was talking, she said, as quote is saying, the very least they could do is increase it by the same $40 million that they increased the men's by. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's just such an easy thing to do. And that would actually be, but that would be probably way too much of an increase for them, for the women. I mean, they just like, uh, you know, Megan Rapinoe and Becky Sauerbrunn were saying like, this is pennies to them. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Which is what's so infuriating. What's pennies to them? What's the back change pocket could be a huge, significant boost for women's uh, soccer or football. And it's just, it's, it's infuriating that they don't care. One of my favorite things about this proposal was uh, the travel part. So they upgraded uh, the flights to business class, but only for some of the women's teams. <laughs> so the the flights are only upgraded if it's a flight that's more than four hours. Otherwise, it's you're still in coach. Yeah, it's just so ridiculously petty to like see <laughs> this happening. Like, why are you? Why? Why not just give them all? That's just such a simple thing to do. Give them all business class flights done you're equal you know the travel's equal to the men but no they have to be really complicated about it and since it's in europe that's going to be a lot of teams that don't have a four-hour flight anyways i'm just mad all right shereen yeah the last thing i was just going to say was in addition to all the criticisms from the national teams 
FIFPRO, the Association of Professional Footballers, actually has been pushing back very, very heavily. And I think that's really important. They've been very vocal with their criticisms publicly. And I, I think this is actually important because they have been stated to say it's an increase in the gap between men's and women's prize money. This regressive trend appears to contravene FIFA's statutory commitment to gender equality. A full stop. And I think this is something we need to look at in our analysis is that FIFA actually has a charter about, you know, a charter that, you know, talks about they will not discriminate against people according to gender and they're doing it themselves and their actual rollout of programs and funding. And it's it's so contraindicatory to what they're supposed to advocate for. It's it's but it's very typically FIFA. Brenda? I just wanted to add on the FIFA Pro subject, and I'm so glad you brought it up, Shireen. That just this past year, they added for the first time two women to the board of FIFA Pro. One, one is the former Swedish goalkeeper, uh, Christine Johansson, and the other one is Camilla Garcia from Chile. And they went to Chile to start to organize those women in August. We held with the support of FAIR. That was the, the forum that I went to. And they created a quota for these women that, you know, you have to have a certain number of women on the board. And I don't think it's a coincidence that once they did that, they've been really on top of any sort of gender discrimination going on and just hats off to them. And I think we're seeing that. I'm sorry, I I wish, you know, we didn't have to force women getting representation. Okay, but it works when when it happens sometimes. And I think in this case, it is. All right. Next is Brenda's interview with Nicole McClure. We are thrilled to have with us today Nicole McClure, a wonderful player from the Jamaican national team who just had the most impressive run to their first berth at the Women's World Cup. And she also plays for Sundsvall in Sweden. Nicole, how are you? I am doing great. <laughs> You must be. Could you tell us a little bit about the experience of qualifying for the World Cup in France? It was a pretty long 18 days, to say the least. Very eventful. It was great. We trained every day. We stayed focused and also very, very patient because, you know, we lost our first game against Canada and then we bounced back against Costa Rica and Cuba. But it it was a great experience staying in those two cities in Texas. So I'm just glad it all panned out the way it did. Yeah. In the lead up, we had interviewed a Jamaican player and specifically about the lack of a camp going Mm -hmm. into it. Were you surprised that given the kind of challenges that you faced as a team that you were able to pull it together and make this run? Honestly, personally, I had no doubt that we wouldn't qualify. We we were so focused and, and so driven by all the adversities against us, so... I'm not surprised that we did not have a camp, and I'm not surprised about the backlash that Lauren got about it, but I'm glad she spoke up on our behalf. But yeah, I had all the confidence in the world that we would, you know, just defy all odds. So I'm not that surprised, but also I'm very humble at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And why the name, I mean, your team, the national team, just like the men's side, has the nickname of the Reggae Girls. Why is that the nickname of the team? <laughs> Do you know? I'm not really sure, but I'm assuming it's because, you know, reggae originated from Jamaica. So, you know, in Jamaica, everybody has an alias. <laughs> Everyone has 
some kind of nickname, whether it be a, a national team or even just a person off the street. So it's just a Jamaican thing. Everybody has, you know, a thing, you know, so I really can't really describe it. It's just a cultural, a cultural thing. Do you feel like you're very together, like pulled together as a team right now? Definitely. We've grown really, really close over these past 18 days in um, in Texas. Of course, you're going to you know, hang out with certain people more than others. But in general, we're definitely very, very close. What were the crowds like in Texas? In McAllen, in the first, in the group stages, there weren't that many people at our games, to be honest. The stadium was huge. It was a, it was a professional stadium, but not that many people showed up. But in the tunnel where the players walk out, there are tons of little girls and, and their parents wanting to take pictures with us. But in the actual stands, you can actually probably count how many people are there. But, you know, that's that's just women's football. So I'm not really too concerned about that. But hopefully with this historic win, we'll generate more fans. And what about in the other city? You said there was McAllen. And then what was the second city you played in? Frisco. The U.S. game generated about 7,000 people. So it was a pretty, you know, healthy crowd. It felt like they were on the field. <laughs> And then the second game against Panama, there were not that many people because it was raining. It was raining pretty hard. But towards the end of the, end of the game, I guess the U.S. and Canada fans came in. And then at least maybe 2,000 people were there, I'm assuming. So it was a pretty, pretty healthy crowd there at the end. So like during the penalty shootouts, a lot of people were there and they were, you know, cheering and jeering. So that was pretty cool. So how do you go forward? I mean, congratulations, by the way. It was amazing. It's it's Jamaica's first birth at a World Cup. Really exciting. I think it's the first for any Caribbean nation. Is that right? Yes, at the senior level, yes. So that's incredible. And now what do you all do? We all basically went our separate ways on Thursday. I went to Sweden. A lot of my teammates went back to school or home. Yeah, we're, right now we're just kind of waiting to see what's, ne- what's next in terms of Jamaica football. And so you're a player that's putatively on this team getting ready and you're playing in Sweden. That's right? Correct. You're yes. at Sons of All. And how do you kind of translate that experience into getting ready for the national team? I've learned a lot here in Sweden. The training here is a little bit different, the style. It's very, very technical. So I use what I learned here and resonated on the, the field for Jamaica. But yeah, here it's, it's very, very independent as well because I have a lot of downtime. So I do a lot of training on my own as well as with the groups of teammates here. I mean, I'm very, very driven. So <laughs> it's not hard to prepare for anything really. And can you tell us, I know you're from New York and I teach on Long Island. <laughs> I think you played soccer out there. You're kind of a legendary player. Could could you tell us a little bit about, so what are the conditions like between university team, club soccer in the U.S., national team in Jamaica, and now club soccer in Sweden? How do those things compare, that experience? Well, growing up in New York playing for East Meadow, as well as Auburndale and Queens, is a little bit different because sometimes our training fields were at different venues because you have to wait to see, you know, which teams, you know, the, the time schedule, et cetera. But the intensity was always the same. You know, you train maybe two or three times a week when I was in New York. And in college it was different, of course, because it's even more intense. Sometimes you train two or three times a day. 
before the season started. And it's always at the same venue. And each training had a different theme, so to speak. So sometimes you work on defending, sometimes you work on attacking, et cetera. Now with the national level, as well as the professional level, it's, it's almost the same as college, but the trainings are not as frequent. We just train here in Sweden, for example, we practice maybe three or four times a week to prepare for our one game on the weekend, maybe on a Saturday or a, or a Sunday. But it's basically the same thing everywhere I go. <laughs> what are the crowds like in Sweden? It just depends on the town as well as the, the team, how they're doing in the standings. Here in Sundsvall, we don't really generate that many fans, unfortunately. However, our stadium is huge, so you can also count how many people are in the stands. But yesterday we had an away game. It, there were quite a few people there because it was a smaller town and the stadium was a little bit smaller. But yeah, it just depends, really. We don't generate thousands like the men do, not even close. Okay, just because you think of women's football and Sweden has been such a legendary place. I mean, Marta plays has played there. So many players like yourself have ended up with careers in Sweden. So it's like this this sort of image, like what must it be like, like a heaven of women, <laughs> women's football, just because there's so many great players that, that play there. So anyway, so it's, it's, it's just a thing that you think of if you've never been there. And I have never been to a Swedish women's game. So life goals, life goals. How did you end up playing for Jamaica? I read that you grew up in New York and I think your mom's from the U.S. and your dad's from Jamaica. No, that's wrong. Oh, no, sorry. I would How really, is it? I really hope someone changes that. Both of my parents are from Jamaica. Like born and raised, you know, went to high school there, everything. And they're very proud of that. So I really hope whoever made that mistake will, will change that. And I told my mom, and she was like, what? Why, why would they say that? But <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, both my parents are from Jamaica, full disclosure. My entire family is from Jamaica, except for me and my brother and some of my cousins. But how I got on the team is my parents basically know everyone, and everyone knows my parents. And one of my old coaches went to high school with them, and he knew some of the coaches on the national team at the time. This was in 2008. And so he actually called my, my mother and asked her if, you know, it's, if it was okay for me to, to join the team. So she was like, why are you asking me? Ask her. So she handed me the phone and I spoke with him and I said, yes, absolutely. I'm get, it sounds like a dream, you know, to represent my family on the soccer field. That would be amazing. Absolutely. So then this was for the World Cup qualifiers in 2008 at the under 20 level. And we went to Puebla, Mexico a couple weeks later because I, I had to fly down to Jamaica and get my passport. And then in three days, I got it. And then I went to Mexico, played against Costa Rica, Nicaragua, and Canada. And unfortunately, we lost. We didn't advance out of that stage. But from then on, I've always been on, on the national team. Okay. Well, good. Good that you've let us all know if precisely how it came to pass. And when you look forward to the Women's World Cup in 2019, I mean, the groups aren't set yet, but who would you hope to not get <laughs> as your first rival? And maybe who are you thinking you you might be able to, to beat? Well, I mean, as my mother always says, the ball is round, so anything can happen. I would love to play against the top 
five teams in the world, whether it be Germany or France or even U.S. again. So I, I'm ready for anybody, you know, like they're different from us, even though they're ranked much higher. I would love to play against anybody. So bring it on. That's what I say. <laughs> Fantastic. What was it like? You opened the scoring in the game against Panama, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Right. You had the first goal. Right. Okay. How did that feel? For me, I was just like, okay, we've got it. We have tons of time. Don't celebrate yet. Mm -hmm. I'm very, very patient. And I like to wait and see mm -hmm. how the game pans out before I actually react. Mm -hmm. And it, that's actually how I approach life, really. But yeah, a lot of my teammates were, and also the coaches, you know, were, were carrying on like, yeah, we got this, blah, blah, blah. But I'm just like, okay, the game is still young, you know? <laughs> Because it was early. Your 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 goal was pretty early. I'm trying to remember what minute it would have come. Yeah, but... I think it was like the 17. Yeah. yeah. Something yeah. super early. Yeah. yeah. So there's no no reason to celebrate yet because we have tons of time left. I was genuinely happy for Khadija when she scored because I love her and I think she's an awesome mm -hmm. player. But yeah, I was just like, you know what? It's it's not time to celebrate yet. Didn't even smile. I just nodded my head and said, Yep, okay. Next one. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it coming. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's, that's wonderful. So when do you actually go to France in a World Cup like this? I mean, I think most people just don't know how the process works. Honestly, I'm one of those people. I really don't know. <laughs> okay. I haven't heard anything yet. So I'm just staying tuned like everybody else. I'm just focused on finishing the season here in Sweden and then going from there. From what the last I heard was there might be a parade for us in Jamaica, but I'm just not sure about France yet. Oh, that would be amazing. Oh my gosh, you, you all so deserve that. That would be excellent. That would be super cool. My last question then is about that. In the, in the press, there's been a lot made of the fact that one of Bob Marley's daughters has supported the team. Is, is, is that true? Is there a relationship there? Oh, without her, there would be no team. Like, Sadella is awesome. Can you tell us a little bit of, about her or our listeners might not know? Well, Sadella Marley is one of Bob Marley's daughters. She is the ambassador of women's football in Jamaica. And as you know, Bob was a huge Tucker fan. Like that was one of his pastimes back in the 70s. So, you know, I, I guess she just wanted to carry on his legacy, not only through music, but, but through sports. So she came on board, and I believe it was in 2014 when she, when we tried to do what we did last week, four years ago. She funds the team. She's one of the financial background spines of the team. Like I said, without her, there would be no team. <laughs> she's the money. She's the face. She's the heart and soul of of the reggae girls. She's a great person. You, you would never think that you know you're sitting beside a multimillionaire. She's so down to earth. She's awesome. She actually sent me a personal message after the games and was like, you know, good job and everything. So that was awesome. I didn't even know what else to say. Like I said, she's the best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. That's really good to know because you read it in the media and it's it's hard to know what that relationship might be like. So it's great to like hear, you know, that you feel really supported by her and she's been like a spark plug in the organization. So... Well, Nicole, I would just like to say a hearty congratulations from Burn It All Down. We'll be watching the Reggae Girls and rooting for you and really excited to see you all in the Women's World Cup. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. 
Okay, this week <laughs> uh, we had the University of Maryland late in the week, because these drops always come late in the week, release a 198-page report that was commissioned in the wake of the death of Jordan McNair, and it was about the culture of Maryland football. Brenda, I'm going to try not to spoil this. Do you want to get us started here? How is well, the culture <laughs> in Maryland football? <laughs> uh, it's technically not toxic, but it's technically horrific. So uh, I didn't read the whole 198 page report. And I know that Lindsay did. So I won't even try <laughs> to pretend that I am the expert here. But within the report, there's a couple important things. One is the intentional mishandling of a Title IX case, which involved a student affiliated with the athletics department who accused two football players of sexual assault in 2017. And the athletic director at the time was Kevin Anderson and the coach, DJ Durkin, paid for the football players' legal fees, as it turns out. And they did it again under the guise of speaking fees, a $15,000 speaking fee for a law firm, which if you are in university administration, you know what an incredible amount of bullshit that is. It, we have to detail, I am so pissed, we have to, in Latin American and Caribbean studies, detail every $100 spent. There is no way we would just start $15,000 here and there. So it is not only a horrific culture in terms of the way that they've treated players and students, but we should just say, this is dirty. Like, this is shady-ass dirty shit. If you are, If you can just hide 15 grand in a public university and that's not a big deal... Wow. Anyway, on top of all of that, what's disgusting is that they, of course, they didn't offer to pay for the victim's legal fees, just the football players. They're both students and they're both in the athletic department in some form or fashion. So anyway, there are Title IX officers, if people don't know, available on every campus who should have been consulted immediately and this should not have been handled by these bozos who have no credentials to make decisions about the university. Then... There's also this other issue of really importantly about abusive behavior of, as Lindsay mentioned, the report is coming because of the fallout from the death of 19-year-old offensive lineman Jordan McNair, which we've talked a lot about on the show and Lindsay's written extensively about. But anyway, this abusive behavior by strength and training coach Rick Court is pretty shocking. If you just look through, like I said, I didn't read the whole thing. You don't have to to read things that are really disturbing about abuse, verbal abuse of players, um, making them eat until they throw up, throwing trash cans at them. Rick Court then, who was already leaving, supposedly got a settlement of over $300,000 on his way out. That's $300,000 of public money. So just let that sink in for actually leaving for in this disgrace. So those, I think, are some of the issues. Let's just, I want to ask you, Linz, because I know you've read it in detail. Who was on the commission? So it was a lot of people affiliated with Maryland, like former athletes who had been there <laughs> and things like that. Like Bonnie Bernstein was on the commission, you know, the sports journalist and former gymnast. It was kind of bizarre to me. I mean, it was definitely, you know, they say, quote unquote, independent, but these are all people with with stark ties to Maryland. And, you know, I mean, the football, I mean, if you read this report, which unfortunately, as Brenda mentioned, I did. 
it goes through 198 pages detailing a toxic culture. And its conclusion is that the culture is not toxic. So it's this, you know, and we saw a very similar thing with Ohio State earlier this year. It was not, thank God, a 198 page report. But when they did the search into what happened with Urban Meyer and Zach Smith, the coach who had uh, been accused and convicted of domestic violence, and they, you know, to see if Urban Meyer had been enabling Zach Smith, this I think it was about a 29 page report that a commission had, you know, it started detailing all the ways that which Urban Meyer had not helped out Courtney Smith, Zach Smith's now ex-wife, and the ways that he had lied to the public and to the commission itself. But its conclusion was that Urban Meyer respects women and Urban Meyer is not a liar. So, you know, these two examples so close to one another are just really stark for me. How you have, it feels to me like a way to feign accountability Uh, without really making anyone responsible. You know, it's this, oh, yes, everyone made mistakes, but at the end of the day, nobody's actually responsible. And it's so horrific in Maryland. I mean, a player literally died. Like, I don't want this to get lost in here. Jordan McNair died because during practice, he was pushed beyond the realm. He should have been pushed for someone at his weight and in the amount of shape he was in. He was showing signs of heat stroke, and those signs were ignored by the training staff. He was pretty much tortured in front of his friends, you know, on the football team, you know, just pushed to unreasonable beliefs to the point where he had a seizure. Because of this tough guy culture, he didn't feel comfortable speaking out. It's very clear. And then he wasn't taken seriously when he was sick. And if he had been taken seriously, he would be alive today. Heat stroke is treatable. You just have to take it seriously and actually treat it. And so to me, it's just so bizarre that you go through this whole, I mean, bizarre is not even close to a good enough word for it, but you go through this whole report detailing other abuse that players have received on the team, other ways that players are pushed past the the limits where they're comfortable, you know, playing through injuries. And there was one quote where under Jerkins team, you don't get injured. Like, unless you can't walk, you're not injured. Like it's a sign of weakness. And, you know, especially all the ways that the strength coach court would bully these, these kids and young adults because of, whether they were eating too much or not eating properly or, you know, just bullying them about food and their weight. And then you think of Jordan McNair, who was an overweight lineman. And it just, I don't know how you don't say that this isn't part of the culture. Like it's very clearly part of the culture. And yet you want to just pretend that it's not. And I don't know. It just, it was really, really, really hard for me to stomach. And to me, It was just, it felt like this excuse, like, well, football culture is toxic. Therefore, no individual program has a toxic culture because this is just the way football programs are. Shireen? I just have a question. So in all this, like, I absolutely love that you're using the word bullying, Lindsay, because I think that's exactly what it is when you look at the power dynamics in this and how a lot of these students rely on the football programs, you know, for scholarships or whatnot, like they really, there's no option in some cases to like really resist or respond. So there was an actual report that did say that they found no trace of toxic 
culture. So I'm just trying to get this straight. Like Deadspin reported that this investigation found that there is no toxic culture. But I mean, like, who's doing the investigating here? Well, that's what I'm saying. It's like this, it's the exact same thing as the Meyer thing where they lay out the exact same report, lays out all the incidents of Meyer lying and then says Urban Meyer is not a liar. You know what I mean? Like it's the same people doing the report and making the conclusion and they're all tied to the university. So that's like what's just like really appalling. Like this report clearly shows a toxic culture, but because they also found people within the program who were not upset with it. Do you know what I mean? Who felt that the players were treated properly, then it becomes this case where, okay, well, we can't, you know, it wasn't every single person we talked to. Some people felt that they were running things properly, that this is how a football program should be run. So it's not a toxic culture. And that's just what really stuck out to me was this like circular logic. And it just seems like it's in this place where, Nothing is going to change as long as your reason why football culture isn't toxic is that, well, other football programs are toxic, too. Uh, just these are some some quotes from a survey that are included in this report. So when asked if a player witnessed unduly harsh language or verbal abuse at Maryland, one of the players, a current player, said, this is anonymously said, quote, I don't know how to tell what's wrong and right. That's normal all over the country. Curse words and words like the P word everyone uses. I don't see it as demeaning. I don't know, honestly, if it's demeaning or just regular. I mean, think about that. That is just that's heartbreaking. Brenda? Yeah, I would just like to say I feel like their students, this that aspect is totally lost. As soon as we say the word football, and it drives me nuts because when you ask how is it going to change, it has to be faculty. There's nobody else who's going to do it. There's nobody else who's going to do it. And I mean, and they do everything they can to marginalize shared governance. So there was a, an article that came out in the Chronicle of Higher Education that interviewed faculty about their feelings going back to school after the death of Jordan McNair, and so many were upset and talked about shared governance and how they were being shut out from discussion. And the chair of the faculty senate went to uh, the president's office and had a long meeting. And it's really, it has to be, a university is there to educate students. The main people at a university that should be actors in a university are students and teachers. And this is just like, this is like people who have grafted on like parasites to a university and built this brand and this nostalgia and it has to stop. And faculty are the only ones with power inside to do it, but it takes so much work because administrators know how to shut them down. But we saw it at Rutgers where they achieved getting the athletic director fired. We've seen it across the country that that, that is the internal way to do it. And so because, you know, like you said, Lynn, these people have ties to Maryland. They have nostalgia for these programs. And of course, there's a million great people within these programs. But it just doesn't matter at a certain point. They can't be trusted to run them and they can't be trusted. Yeah, and, and I'm so glad you brought that up, Brenda, because 
part of the report, the report starts by talking about the institutional chaos that was atop this university. So it really did start from the top with the athletics department being a complete shit show, basically. The strength and conditioning coach, the one who ran the practice where McNair died, the one who there are all these abusive examples of his behavior. He wasn't given a performance review in his entire time at Maryland, and he didn't even know who his direct supervisor was, whether it was Durkin, the man who hired him, the head coach of the team, or someone else at the athletics department. And, and the report does say, like, that is that is mind-boggling. Like, that is an institutional failure. And it goes back to these simple things like flowcharts and reporting responsibilities and training and just basic managerial tasks that get that are so important and you just forget how important these things are and it really did just set a tone within this program of chaos i mean i hadn't realized that durkin was just 37 when he was given this job as the head coach at maryland and he didn't have head coaching experience of a top program and this is not to excuse durkin in any way who i do not in any way think should keep his job like it's ridiculous but the report i did think it was interesting says that he was hired under high pressure circumstances and was tasked with turning a struggling football program into a big 10 contender and there was zero administrative oversight to help him get there and it just shows how much all of this is institutional you know i mean if you go back to the day that jordan mcnair died basic protocols had not been taught or drilled into the heads of the people leading this program and therefore jordan mcnair died so you think about football as being just completely separate from the rest of the administration stuff at the university but in fact it's all tied together you need institutional support you need some chain of command you need oversight and you know the ncaa isn't providing any of that so it's it's up to the schools at this point and you know i don't know i'm so glad brenda that you did bring up the what i thought was almost the most damning thing i read in the report which was about that title nine you know it's just such a clear example of of how institutions work to protect football players at all costs while throwing everyone else under the bus i'd really never seen such a clear example of it and it was horrifying to read and i just feel so bad for the victim in this case who was a part of this program and was completely railroaded by the program that she or he was a part of so one of the things that though that i keep going back to is this use of demeaning language homophobic or misogynistic language to clearly abuse the players. And I keep going back to this week, there is this big report from the Oakland Raiders that quarterback Derek Carr had lost the respect of his team because it looked like he had cried while, you know, when he was injured on a play. And that was just so disturbing to me because it just, it's hard not to just relate. Like this is this toxic masculinity how do we, and both of you are parents and Brenda, you're an educator. And I just would love your take on how do we help support the men in these programs who are being taught this so re- such a reductive tale of like what masculinity is. I love that. Shireen? 
I think that the unlearning of these things for young men and young women, because we also know that women uphold toxic patriarchy as well, and it's part of the problem, that the allowances for these words to be used as, you know, slanderously. And and I think that it's in addition to the homophobia, transphobia, and outright misogyny. I think that unlearning is possible. It is absolutely possible. But what upsets me more is how the way that the coaches, and we talked about this a little bit briefly, like the power dynamic and how the coaches, I don't think it's just the players that need to do this. I would love to see coaching staff and admin have to go through those women and gender studies programs as well, because I would, I would love to see an unlearning of all of that. We can look to the youth, we can look to the students and say, okay, there's hope here. But I also think it can be done. Don't tell me, because I mean, if we essentially say that anyone over 30 can't unlearn something, then we have a huge problem. So I would love to see people that are in those coaching positions actually have to be accountable for their language. This is this is what I think. And I'm not giving any old white men any passes here. I'm sorry. Fix yourself. Because, you know, I'm known to give old white men passes. Yeah. You, you, you've given out maybe one in your life. So it's... <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even know. For Santa Claus, maybe. So... I think that they would absolutely have to. And I want to hold these institutions accountable because they are complicit in this. And I, I, I'm finding a having a really difficult time with these committees and these investigations that say there's no toxic masculinity. And Lindsay, you stated it so beautifully. Of course it is. This is all part of it. And it's so troubling. Yeah. And just, I, I love that thought of, of bringing the coaches into it. It reminded me of this, this piece. And I'm just going to wrap up here by reading this excerpt from the report about uh, Durkin. So a lot of the report couldn't figure out what exactly Durkin, who's the head coach, who is currently on paid administrative leave um, still, and there's still no word as to what's going to be done, you know, with his job. And the report really, you know, wavered. It was much more damning about court who has already stepped down than it was about Durkin, but I just want to read this section. So it says from the report, it says, Mr. Durkin does admit that he heard court using the PB and PF epithets, but did not hear that language directed at specific individuals. Durkin further acknowledges that he heard about the incident where court took a box of food out of a player's hands and threw it against the wall. But Durkin still does not believe that court, quote, crossed any lines. End quote. All right. Well, after that, I am really ready for the burn pile. <laughs> so, uh, Brenda, can you get us started here? Sure. It's revisiting one of the most inflaming ongoing cases, which is Cristiano Ronaldo and media coverage of the rape case that should be plaguing him, but doesn't seem to be. And so what I would like to complain about is an article written by Mr. Steve Douglas of the New York Daily News. <laughs> I didn't even go after the New York Post, right? Because that's too easy. And so the title of the article is Cristiano Ronaldo Defends Himself Against Rape Accusation. It's actually not news. There's no news in it. There's nothing to report whatsoever but let me give you and i know i'm like i don't know i'm just gonna pour the gasoline on right now let me give you a quote and just see how Lindsay and shireen react and hopefully they can stay in their seats quote ronaldo joined juventus in the offseason from real madrid 
He has scored five goals in nine matches for the Italian champion and two in three matches since being accused of rape. End of quote. What the fuck, (laughs) Mr. Douglas, are you thinking by making those equivalent experiences and using it as like a bar? Like since being accused of rape, his play has really been stellar. What a joke. One thing should have nothing to do with another, and you should in no way treat rape allegations and cases as if they're somehow less important than his stupid scoring, which it's the Italian league and it's dirty as hell anyway. So just to throw that out there, you just, I mean, it's not even important. Like a rape case is important. Anyway, the article just goes on to repeat the same stupid garbage that is always repeated by Ronaldo's media people. And I would just like to burn just just the continuous. They're not listening to Shireen. She wrote a great article in Time about this. <laughs> she wrote a great article with me. And they need to change the way that they're doing this. And so did Linz and so did Jessica. So I just want to burn the ongoing garbage that gets peddled as news. Burn. 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 Okay, I'm going to go off of that real quick. I'd like to, I haven't thrown James Dolan on the burn pile in a while, the owner of the New York Knicks. So I would like to, you know, it's been a while. So James Dolan and the Madison Madison Square Garden have taken out an all out revenge campaign against the radio station WFAN and its parent company Intercom. And I, I do have to give credit to the New York Post for reporting this. I don't ever really say that phrase but you know they they did get this story so this summer maggie gray who we love here at burn it all down she went on a rant about dolan on wfan the radio show that she hosts or co-host um she pointed out some very important things among them she called dolan a quote vile piece of trash (laughs) among other things and this takedown was brought on because dolan with his band, his band is called JD and the Straight Shot, uh, released a song called I Should Have Known, which was about Harvey Weinstein, a longtime friend of Dolan's. <laughs> oh, my God. So They can perform at the Super yeah, Bowl. Right. Uh, so Gray <laughs> thought that it was pretty hypocritical of Dolan to be performing this Me Too song when the Dolan and the Knicks and of course, the Liberty employ Isaiah Thomas, who was found liable for a hostile work environment and for sexually harassing a woman in 2007. And he still works for the Knicks and he is in charge of the New York Liberty, the women's basketball team. So she she went on a, a lengthy rant about this. Dolan has responded by now ordering all of Madison Square Garden's business across the country to shut down working with Intercom and banned Knicks and Rangers players, as well as Madison Square Garden broadcasters and personnel from appearing on the station. What? (laughs) What petty man are you that you cannot take a woman calling you out on your shit without going after her entire business? Gray is now caught in a really horrible um, position and, you know, she has apologized for the language she used during the rant this summer. 
But James Dolan and Madison Square Garden are not backing down. So we just want to send our support to Maggie Gray, and we want to throw James Dolan on the burn pile. Burn. 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 Shereen? I read about this story, and it actually was really upsetting because we understand, we talk about abuse of, you know, sexist, misogynist, verbal abuse of players and whatnot all the time. This particular story was about a woman referee named Grain Crabtree, who is a rugby official in Ireland. And she had actually complained about the sexist abuse, verbal abuse she received from four players at a match that she was officiating. And the response of the Coraline RFC was to be fined 5,000 pounds by the Irish Rugby Federation, the football union, rather. And what happened was it was just $5,000, but it took them a very long time to respond. And some of the things that happened on the on the pitch, and I'll just I'll say them and just trigger warning for some people because the language is rough. She sustained mild sexist abuse, which she wrote a five-page letter, and she describes it how it was a tirade of profanities and sexual remarks during, during the 80-minute game. And they were laughing at her. They said things like, she was a fucking joke. They said, take your sh- off your shorts so we can get a better look at your arse. They were saying, yo, you slag, you're a fucking disgrace, you slag. Like, using very horrific language. She was the official on the pitch during the match. So this is like completely unacceptable. And when she went over to, this started when she wanted to uh, give one of them, book them with a yellow card. Then afterwards, she went over to them to ask their name so she could put in an official complaint. And they responded with another very sexual, graphic sexual swear word. And she said she was described as feeling shocked, confused, and in fear and physically sick. And I think that it was it was really upsetting, and initially the suspension it wasn't as suspended. The charges that were upheld finally, initially the the initial fine was considered a non-sanction, which is really terrible because this should be a sanctionable offense. And she said it actually added insult to injury. So that was just it was so upsetting. Now the other thing is the five thousand dollar fine that they've gotten will be two thousand pounds of that will be returned if they don't have any such offenses in the next two years, which I think is ridiculous because finding someone and then saying, you know what, it's okay, you're all good now, let's give it back. The purpose of a fine is to actually put somebody in financial sort of a way to penalize them. Giving the money back. So all of this, the fact that this occurs in the first place. The fact that the rugby union didn't respond in a timely manner and the way that they responded was subpar. So in addition to expressing solidarity and our support of Green Crabtree and other referees out there that have to endure this, I want to burn this. Burn. Burn. Okay, it is time to celebrate some of the badass women of the week. First of all, we want to give a shout out to two new female referees who just recently worked their first NBA games, uh, Natalie Sajo and Ashley Moyer-Gleich. And they are non-staff currently, but hopefully they're on the track to working full-time because uh, we could use some more female referees out there. Sonia Murr became the first Pakistan player to top the rankings in cricket, which is super exciting, Galare Nazimi became the first Iranian woman to officiate a FIFA-sanctioned futsal event. She refereed the final of the Women's Youth Olympic Futsal Tournament in Buenos Aires between Portugal and Japan. 
We have Ramla Ali, the British Somali boxer, who will be the first woman to represent Somalia at the 2020 Olympic Games. Oh my God, that's super exciting. Dina Asher-Smith, this year's European Athlete of the Year. Victoria Jepson, who is Liverpool FC's women's side's first team manager. As we record right now, both Sloane Stevens and Alina Svitolina are playing in an incredibly tight final at the WTA Championships in Singapore for the last women's tennis match in the WTA of the year. So we want to give a shout out to both of them and especially whoever wins because, you know, winning is great. (laughs) And speaking of winning, can I get a, a drum roll, please? All right. Our badass woman of the week had to be Simone Biles, who is currently dominating the world championships in Doha and gymnastics after dealing with kidney stones. Literally, she was in the hospital with kidney stones in the emergency room until early in the morning. And the very next day went out and performed a vault in competition that is now known as the Biles, the Simone Vault. So uh, there's just no stopping her. And in in addition to her wonderful uh, gymnastics, she is doing such a great job advocating for survivors within USA Gymnastics and calling out the leadership there. So she's just a hero for all of us all around. Okay, friends. What's good this week? Brenda. I actually need to look at my notes sometimes when you ask me about that. I'm like, something occurred to me once. <laughs> what what might it be? And I'm not going to do Halloween again, but know that that's ongoing. Okay. My book is Alive <laughs> Yay. with Josh Nadel. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real thing. And this week, University of Texas Press put it out for the book fair crowd. It's not actually going to be published until May 21st, right before the Women's World Cup. And it's called Football Leda, A History of Women in Sports in Latin America. Like I said, I wrote it with Josh Nadel. And I love the cover. I absolutely love the cover. It's like red and cool. And it has two pictures of women soccer players from the 1940s that we were really excited about. So that is good in my week. Yeah, that's amazing. Shereen? I just got back from the Middle East. I went to Jordan on a trip and it was amazing. I visited the Dead Sea, floated in there, put some mud on my face and went to Petra, which was like super cool, made friends with a camel that I'm really excited about because I really love camels. I just, it was a beautiful place. And just, you know, sadly, just a day after and left, there was actually a flood, a flash flood in the Dead Sea, and 17 people, including school children, were killed in that. So I was just sort of like thinking about my trip and being really grateful that everything went safely, et cetera, et cetera. Amman is a really beautiful city. Wish I spent more time there, but it was incredible. It was a fantastic trip of a lifetime. The other thing that I was just did last night with my kids and with my really good friend, Courtney Sito, was uh, Dr. Courtney Sito, who is a professor and has been on Burn It All Down, and my friend Amina Mohammed. I went to the Le Canadien versus Toronto Fury's CWHL game, which was so much fun. I saw Hillary Knight, who was captain of the American women's team, an Olympic team, and 
it's, she's just formidable, like watching Natalie Spooner skate, Sarah Nurse, and then, of course, my beloved Le Canadien, um, Mel de Rocher. She was a beast on the ice. I was on her podcast with Safia Ahmed like last week. But seeing Marie-Philippe Poulain is just is always going to get me. She is my prime minister, co-prime minister with Christine Sinclair, the real leader of this country. Just to be in that space to watch these women and to watch my three boys be completely enamored in the third period and be like, oh, my God, this game is amazing is just was really fulfilling. So yay for women's hockey. That's incredible. For me, I, yeah, it's another week where <laughs> it's kind of hard. I survived this week. It was a really rough week. I saw a star is born on Wednesday, one of the nights this week. And that was incredible. So it was good to see a very good movie, quite some good performances there. And my friend is running a marathon today. So I'm about to leave this podcast to go cheer him on. And so I'm excited for that cool to see your friends accomplishing great things. All right. Thank you all so much for listening to Burn It All Down today. We appreciate your love and support as always. You can go to our website, burnitalldownpod.com. Find us on Facebook, Burn It All Down. Find us on Twitter, Burn It Down Pod. And as we mentioned, find look for our Patreon page and our Teespring page where you can continue to support us and love us. We love you and we will see you next week. And I'll suck you.